So I'm sitting in this random Cuban family's kitchen like one in the at morning. 1 a.m. They're like, do you want some coffee? I'm feeling like I'm basically going to die. I felt terrible. Basically stopped eating, stopped drinking water, just slept all day. Finally, uh, the woman whose house we were staying at was like, oh, do you have red dots on your stomach? And I was like, yes, that's so weird. I do. And she's like, yeah, you have dengue fever. Like oh. you need to go to the hospital. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone, to the Debate Without Debate podcast. It's a new week. We have a beautiful new episode for you. Today, we are joined by Jules and Christine of Don't Forget to Move. Jules and Christine, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. So for those who don't already know you, um, those coming and listening from our podcast, could you give just a little quick overview as to yourselves, just a little introduction? Yep. So I'm Christine and this is my husband, Jules. We have a travel blog called Don't Forget to Move, where we write about adventure travel and sustainable tourism. We've had that since 2013. And now we also have a travel-based podcast called Not So Bon Voyage, where we tell stories of when things go horribly wrong when you're traveling. And now we're starting to have guests come on and they tell their stories of when things go completely haywire on their travels. And we love just showing that side of travel because so many people now see like the Instagram glamour side of travel, but anybody who's actually, you know, traveled around the world knows that that's not really what it looks like. So we just wanted to show people the other side of travel, which is when your bus breaks down and things get stolen and all that crazy shit happens. And yeah, so we're really excited to be working on that as well. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of funny how, how you have a podcast that's focused on um, kind of the stuff which isn't typically talked about for adventure or travel. It adds a level of humility to the experience. Um, in your eyes, what does that humility, what does that uh, almost element of surprise do to uh, the travel experience? I think first of all, it gives you like a good story and gives you sets you apart from what everybody else is doing. And so, you know, people go to a location and they do the same thing. They see the same places. They take the same pictures. And what they often don't get is a real authentic, transformative experience. And that's what we've found came from these stories. It's when people are challenged, when people are put under the pressure, under the pump, that they really learn something about themselves or they learn how much stronger they were and or they just learn how they could just brush something off. And so we found that over the years, some of the best stories that people told were the ones where things didn't go right. And they're the ones that they look back on and retold and retold and could eventually hopefully laugh if they were if they weren't too bad. And so yeah, that and for us that's always been our favorite stories to hear and tell as well. So sort of seemed like a no brainer. And it was different, as Christine said. It wasn't just the same old stuff that people were doing and telling the, you know, oh, I went here and I did this and everything was perfect. Yeah, I think also just with the age of social media, not to name and shame Instagram because we are on there and we use it a lot, <laughs> but, you know, people want to go and they see people in these gorgeous backgrounds and they want to go replicate these photos, especially with places like Bali, where we live part time um, out of the year. People want to go and they want the rice terrace photo and they want the Bali swings photo. And so they go there with those in mind. And when you go there with that uh, like purpose of travel, the country and the environment and the community end up becoming just like a prop or, or uh, like background for your photo Secondary. opportunity, basically. Mm -hmm. And people aren't interacting with the with the community, with the environment. Um, 
And that's really problematic because that's a whole point of travel. Like for us, our best experiences have come when we're like looking really not very good and we're sweaty and we're taking public transportation and we're talking to locals and we're getting that really off the beaten track experience. And if you just go there and try to look gorgeous in a beautiful ball gown, like, and on a swing or whatever, then you're not going to have those same experiences as if you just go and show up and see what happens and just enjoy the experience for what it is rather than what kind of photo op you can get out of it. Mm -hmm. How how do you think that the culture of I need to post this or I need to take a photo of this to get X amount of likes. How do you think that's perverted the experience of uh, travel? Oh, 100%. It's, yeah. it's, the single most, <laughs> it's the single most thing that's probably seen a decline in authentic travel and see seen the rise in like glamour travel and people traveling with hat bags and things like that and people trying to replicate that and, and they see these self-made you know, Instagram models and or stars and things like that. And they think that it's easy and really it's timing, good luck. And they're one in a million, the people who actually make it through and they focus all their attention on, as Christine said, the wrong reason and, and the actual cultural experience and the exchange that you get from travel becomes secondary to, you know, a good photo opportunity. So 100% I'd say that the rise in social media has seen a decline in authentic travel. Yeah. And I don't want to shame people who, travel you know in that way because we do use Instagram and we do set up photos and everything and I understand like when you see those photos and you see somebody like on this gorgeous view and they're looking beautiful and they have like a really cute hat or whatever you have this feeling like oh that person probably feels incredible sitting there it's like they have this gorgeous view they look lovely everything's perfect but then when you go there and you have to like wait two hours in line in the sun to get you know get the photoshop and you have to like pay you know thirty dollars to you know sit on the swing or whatever then you're missing out on other experiences. Those two hours that you're waiting in line to get this one photo, you could be out doing this other incredible experience, you know, biking, you know, to a different part of the island or a different area or doing anything else. And I feel bad for people who get stuck in this loop of like, I just want to go and tick off my list of like this photo and this photo and this photo because travel has so much more to offer. And I feel like Instagram really has had a negative impact in that way. And people just keep going to the same places because on your feed, you see the exact same places and yeah, they're not getting off the beaten track and seeing other places. And it's, yeah, it can be kind of depressing. Yeah. I mean, it has been good. It has been a tool that's helped increase tourism and helped sort of awareness in certain locations but it has also oversaturated content in locations as well, which has created that. And it's also that oversaturation has also created over-tourism, which has, you know, had its own separate problems in terms of environmental impact and personal impact for communities as well. So, you know, there's some flow on effects that often don't get heard of when it comes to over-tourism. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, it's kind of funny because uh, Asher and I had a similar experience. We, uh, th- th- we're thankful to our parents that we have have had the experience to, to travel at least a little bit but before this whole quarantine thing and um, our one of our last destinations was Tulum Mexico and you know Tulum has this huge uh, representation on social media as being this glamorous place with like fancy beach huts and stuff and when we were there it was all that it was it most definitely what did have all the glamour but when we looked a level deeper, um, there were like social media models posing and then talking about how they had like terrible drug addictions when they weren't on the on the camera. And, and so it's just like weird to see that that sort of like 
polarity and that disparity between what you see and what is actually like the the level deeper if that yeah and i think one of the most remarkable parts of of visiting there which was really cool honestly and eye-opening was from one angle it looks perfect but literally if you would go only steps past the hotel it looks entirely different and there, there's a bit of a racialized aspect to it, I think, as well, based off of the communities that, that live there, uh, are also working there. They're almost in the back view, not seen, so to speak. And, and I mean, there's this almost white tourism uh, idea. Uh, I've heard a lot of, a few of my friends went backpacking through Europe, and they, they discussed with me a lot how it was very whitewashed. I wonder mm-hmm. if you've noticed a similar occurrence with your more sustained traveling career. Yeah, I mean, definitely definitely a very homogenized look um, and it sort of all just kind of blends into that. I mean, you know, in the travel industry, it is very white and, it, you know, because it, travel comes from a place of privilege. And then I guess, you know, those conversations are being talked about a lot at the moment. And, you know, we as a travel industry, you know, really need to reflect on that as well. Like everyone involved in you know, it is definitely a privilege to be able to travel and it's a privilege to be able to take a year off and start a travel blog and things like that, and which put us in our position that we're in now. So I think that that's definitely perpetuated in the cycle of social media. Yeah, and definitely when you visit these places, especially developing countries, there is a tourist experience and there is a local experience. And, you know, the tourist experience is all glam, all beautiful. You don't see really a lot of the poverty. You know, it's it's just all positive. Which is what they want you to see. Of course. Yeah. I mean, they orchestrate it perfectly. They do a great job. Uh, but then the people who are working in those uh, experiences or working at the hotels, they live usually on the outskirts of town in more impoverished communities in nothing that looks like wherever you're staying at your Airbnb or your hotel. So there's definitely two sides to ever, uh, both of it. Um, I think probably Rio de Janeiro is probably one of the best examples of that and that there's these like gorgeous hotels like right on the ocean and you can have like the glam of the glam and go to clubs that cost an absorbent amount of money. And For then, Brazil especially. Yeah. And then you go, you can see the favelas yeah. where, you know, the people who work in those hotels and those experiences live and they get pushed out into these, yeah, these communities where they're basically like living on top of each other and have, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the money that um, the tourists spend in these locations don't end up going to the local economy. A lot of it goes into foreign owned hotels that just go straight out of the country. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really sad. Um, which is why, yeah, we focus on sustainable tourism and on our blog and we try to really encourage people to do their research and try to go to locally owned hotels, locally owned restaurants, shop in locally owned shops. Um, so you can give back to the community. Absolutely. I think one of the weird parts about what you noted there, especially with Rio de Janeiro is the juxtaposition is insane. It's like literally steps away from each other where you could be in an incredibly rich gated neighborhood and and then be in favelas and it happens all across the world and one thing I'm very grateful for with the the highlighting of black voices recently and, and what should have been for a long time is those conversations are being had that we are talking about not just the impact of race on things like travel or on the communities that we live in but also the impact of the class that we we live in and and that we occupy all these identities all these 
questions of identity are now coming up more than ever. And, and one of the identities that you both have mentioned that, that you have is that you're bloggers. Uh, and I'd love if we could talk a little bit about the beginning, the Genesis. Joey and I love Genesis stories because <laughs> they, they are the most interesting, so to speak, because we, you know, we see you now uh, seven, seven, eight years from starting. So could you talk to us what urged you to make this decision? How did you go about beginning? Yeah, so our blog started back in 2013, mid. So it was probably about a year after we met. And we were both at the time, this was back in an era before blogging courses, before there were blogs about how to start blogs, before there were conferences. Like this is way before you could really just become a blogger or the idea that you could become a blogger and make a full-time living off it. So for us, it started like a slow transition into what was our own personal blogs just to sort of keep friends and family up to date with what we were doing into, hey, we could start, we should just combine ourselves like our stuff together to we might be able to get a free hostel or a free hotel stay to, hey, we can actually kind of make a bit of money to where we are now. So it definitely wasn't an overnight thing and definitely probably wasn't as rapid as people who are approaching blogs as businesses are now. So for us, it, was, it also sort of came from a, a point of sustainability and like how can we, being from two different parts of the world, me from Australia, Christine from the US, how can we sustain our travels and a little bit longer because we were backpacking at the time and we weren't working. So how could we make stretch out those travels a little bit longer until we worked out what we we're going to do because we're from other sides of the world. Yeah. So Jules and I were both traveling solo and we ended up working at the same nonprofit in Peru. That's where we met and we worked together there for about six months. And then afterwards, we knew we wanted to keep working in development and work around the world in nonprofits. And travel. But and that doesn't pay very well no. <laughs> or at all, pretty much. So we knew we needed some way to make some sort of income uh, to be able to travel, you know, between those gigs, basically. And we knew we didn't need that much money. I mean, we were traveling like budget backpackers, like $5 a night hostels, cooking in the hostel, really cheap, like rice and beans, basically. So we were like, we just need a little bit of income to sustain that. And I had seen travel bloggers, but there were, there were very minimal travel bloggers back then. And now those people are like the OGs. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was just a totally different landscape. I mean, now mm -hmm. like so many people have travel blogs or they're travel Instagrammers. And there's a lot of information out there on how to start a travel blog. So for us, we literally were just winging it and do trial and error, trying to figure it out. And yeah, in 2015, we were in Southeast Asia and we were working at a nonprofit full time in the Philippines. We were also both getting our masters remotely in international development. And we were running the blog and the blog kind of came third just because, you know, we had our had to prioritize what we were doing. And towards the end of uh, that year, we were pretty much ready to quit the blog. Mm -hmm. So we weren't ha getting much income from it. We were getting, you know, like free hostel stays and things like that, which was great. The odd sponsored post, but nothing really. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. And we were like, we like, how do we, we needed like a breakthrough. We just couldn't get it. And it was just taking way too much time. So we were pretty much ready to qu call it quits. And then we ended up going to this travel blogging conference in Bangkok at the end of that year. And we just met all these other travel bloggers. And that was a real breakthrough for us because we were able to swap notes and talk 
to people who were doing this really successfully and we were like okay we could probably give this a real shot so thank goodness we did not quit our travel vlog <laughs> and the next year we just went full-time with it and then since then it's been pretty much our full-time job wow that's that's a super cool note and also a, a good mindset i think and an interesting one to to see from our perspective right doing this for a year and a half now uh, there are times where we think, okay, you know, is this worth our time? We don't make money from it right now. I think many people are in this position right now where mm -hmm. they really enjoy it's whether the honeymoon phase of starting a new yeah. project. Oh yeah, for totally. Sure. <laughs> We're, we we know that. It's phase. like a roller coaster of yeah. emotions. <laughs> <laughs> but that's kind of the fun. Uh, and and just like you were mentioning, I, I or I, I guess I would turn this a little bit into a question. Given the original intentions were for it to be a way to sustain your traveling. What what happened when you started to take it more seriously, I guess, to try and make it a viable business? Things definitely improved. I mean, when we decided that we were going to focus like a lot more of our attention, we were still doing other things. Like in 2016, we were still doing our master's part-time um, from abroad. So we were able to travel at the same time, but we were still focusing on that. And so we, but we were definitely able to give it a lot more attention and we went into it with more intention, which I think was the, the biggest difference. It wasn't just the time, it was the structure and the, the idea is like, this is what we need to do to actually think of it like a business. And I think that mindset is what really changed our perspective on the blog and made it from just a fun sort of hobby where we can keep people up to date and maybe get a little bit of I guess that was that was kind of like the equivalent of getting an Instagram like, like, oh, somebody read your blog, you know, like it sort of made you feel a little bit good. But then when you actually started transferring that time into like income, that's what made it a little bit different. And and since that, since then is when we've been able to, I guess, focus more on it. And yeah, it definitely the mindset shift is, was the biggest thing. Yeah, I think we were kind of just, you know, throwing noodles at the wall and seeing what stuck with the blog. But then we really focused on, you know, discussing with our colleagues online, you know, what was working for them, what was working for us, and just doing a ton more research on things like SEO. Um, and just, yeah, just really looking at it uh, from a prof professional lens rather than just, this is fun, let's do this. That really changed everything because we were able to focus on what was getting results, which was putting out really quality, really long form articles that were really informative for people. And once we started focusing on that, then things started just, you know, really growing and also niching down, yeah, niching down I was gonna say. into uh, sustainable travel was yeah. a huge turning point for us. So previous to that, we were focusing on budget backpacking, which is something a lot of people are interested in, but it's really hard to make money on a blog about budget backpacking because your audience doesn't really have a lot of money. So instead, we uh, switched and focused on sustainable tourism because we were interested, obviously, we we're interested in development. Um, and we wanted to kind of marry that with the blog. So yeah, so sustainable tourism was just kind of the most natural niche for us. And since then, we were able to um, really connect with a lot more partners that were really interested in the same values and same uh, type of travel that we were interested in. And that unlocked a lot of more uh profitable and more interesting collaborations mm -hmm. with different companies. So niching down was also a huge part of that. I would assume that traveling culture is different all around the world. For instance, if a person from the Philippines is traveling, their con contextual background would be totally different than somebody who's traveling from uh, the USA. 
Uh, and I, I remember you noting that uh, you two are from completely different sides of the world. Um, how has that different perspective influenced your traveling experience both individually and uh, when you guys started traveling together, how did that, how did you both alter each other's perspectives? Well, Americans don't travel that much, unfortunately. So true. Yeah. So I mean, the, co- the coast does. Like, okay. So yeah, like New York and California. The West coast, but like in the middle, like you don't travel. Right. Yeah. But even beyond that, like young people, like, okay. So in Europe and I think Australia, like a gap year is much more common than in America. So a lot of young people take the year um, off between high school and college or after college and go traveling. Whereas Americans don't really do that as much, which is really sad. So after I graduated university, I told my friends I wanted to go traveling. I was like, who wants to come with me? (laughs) And of course, I got crickets. So I ended up just having to be like, okay, I'm just going to go travel by myself. So I, you know, worked and saved up money and uh, bought a one-way ticket to Mexico. Had no idea what I was doing. Packed a giant backpack. (laughs) And my parents were like, what is happening? (laughs) But uh, that's what I wanted to do. So yeah. So pretty much everybody back home thought I was crazy for doing that, even though that's so common, you know, for Europeans. But, but Aussies are different. Like, Aussies are different. Aussies, you guys are travelers. Yeah, because we live so far away from everything. And international travel definitely wasn't as big for Australians, I think, back in the past. So when when we took off, we took off for a long time because, you know, it was so, so expensive to fly to a place and it was so far. And so we thought... If I'm going to go to Europe, I'm going to go there for a long time because I'm going to make the most of it. So it was definitely much more of a traveling culture. But in saying that, then there was still quite a lot of my friends who hadn't done long trips. So when I took off for a year the first time, I was like, all right, I'm going for a year. And it wasn't like a super common thing. People were like, all right, cool. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I think the fact that we both wanted to continue traveling, like I think most people are comfortable, like a lot of backpackers are like, okay, I'm going to do like my year long around the world trip and then go back and, you know, settle, settle into a career back home and, you know, get married, have kids and whatnot. But both of us just wanted to keep traveling for as long as possible. So, I I mean, I don't know if that has anything to do with our cultural upbringing, but I think that it was pretty uh, lucky that we found each other and that we were both so interested in traveling long term because a lot of travelers you meet are, you know, who are long-term travelers want to meet a partner, but it's difficult to meet somebody on the road who is as committed to traveling as you are. So yeah, we were really lucky that we both found each other and had that similar interest. It's such an important note, I think, for for most of our listeners who are younger. Um, We've given a lot of thought to, to gap years, had a lot of conversations with folks. And we recently spoke with a life coach. His name is Gly Gabriel. And he, he echoed pretty much the same sentiment that uh, he came from a background already of, of being in, uh, he worked in Wall Street, um, I believe with Goldman Sachs. And, you know, one day he was just like, screw it. I'm going to go travel. Like I, I've been killing myself in a corporate job. Let's go see the world. And as soon as he did that, his whole life opened up. It's something I really want to start doing more of is long form traveling, just like you were mentioning, Jules, because uh, I think there is so much benefit to it aside from just seeing places. It's meeting the people, meeting you know, the locals there and learning about their culture. And this brings me, I guess, to, a, to another question uh, as, re- as it's related to our podcast. We like to focus on some of the more polarizing things uh, in, this, in our society, in the world, and have conversations about them. So to start off that conversation, 
where in the world that you've been to have you noticed the most polarizing nature among the people? Oh my goodness. That's a tough one. Cuba? Yeah, I mean that yeah, probably Cuba. Hmm. <laughs> it's yeah, it's totally a hard question. <laughs> yeah, that's a hard question. I mean, let's see. What about you guys? <laughs> uh, honestly, America. I, yeah, I was yeah, going to say I mean, the state. Yeah. If, I, if I would say yeah. anything, it would be the states. Yeah, I mean that's true. Yeah, we haven't done a lot of uh, we haven't done a lot of travel like in super polarizing like community like mm-hmm. we haven't done like a lot of the south for instance, which is obviously quite a different like feel to you know like California and the Bay Area especially is so liberal. Mm-hmm. And so, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we we've, we've mostly traveled in pretty developing countries where you do see, where I guess you do see the polarizing edge. There would be class. I mean, you see like a lot of the wealth in a very small percentage, which I mean, I guess is like a lot of the world. Um, but when you do travel to places like Guatemala and and you know through Central America or like the Philippines, Southeast Asia, like you do see once you get off the beaten path. You do see a huge, you know, difference between rural communities, like rural and urban, which you don't see in places like the US. So, you know, you have like city life and you have suburb life, but that really changes like dramatically when you go out to developing countries because city life is where 99% of the wealth is and, and urban life is rural life where you have farmers living on a dollar a day. So I'd say a lot of the places that we've worked and spent time have like representations of that so yeah i mean you can find it anywhere i guess yeah Mm. probably mexico is probably one of the best representations of that where that you have like the uber wealthy in mexico city and then you go down to the south in chiapas and you go to some of the indigenous communities and there's a lot of tension there um between the indigenous and the mexican government yeah what made you say you you see it in race uh sorry in um in class the most i'd say Mm -hmm. yeah what makes your gut reaction to that, uh, Cuba? What What about Cuba makes you think it's so polarizing in terms of the people? Uh, probably just because Cuba is like such a unique place in the sense that it's been so isolated from development, yeah. but there are still people who are very wealthy in Cuba, you know, like, but it's sort of hidden behind this sort of socialist facade that, you know, everybody's equal, whereas it's not like there's definitely opportunity there for people and, you know, corruption, which every country has as well. Um, so yeah, you sort of see it there and also like a huge, a huge like polarization, I guess, between the locals and the sort of the semi locals, like the ones that can travel back and forth between the U S like the ones who are Mm. Cuban and identify as Cuban, but have such a different opportunity because they're able to live in the U S whereas the people that are like living in Cuba are so sort of isolated from opportunity because they just don't have that incentive obviously the capitalist incentive, but they also just don't have that opportunity. So it's like, it's, there's nothing there to drive them. Mm. Mm-hmm. You see, like Americans haven't, uh, from my understanding, I don't think Cuba was open to the United States until Obama, late, yeah, Obama, until, like, late Obama administration. <laughs> and I think up until the 80s, even now it still carries through the word communism or like socialism is like almost a curse word in America. Um, I, f- I feel like almost because a lot of us have not had exposure to that sort of culture. Has there ever been an instance where 
um, you've gone to a country, explored, um, hung out with the locals, really just immersed into that culture, uh, and you said, hey, this portrayal of what, whatever the media says about this country isn't exactly correct. Well, Cuba is a great example of that because, yeah. you know, the U.S. has had 45 plus years, like during the Cold War, of that drummed into them of like this, this capitalist versus communist, you know, and then with various spikes throughout it through proxy wars with, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis and other sort of things in Afghanistan and, and stuff. And so, like, yeah. Yeah, and I would say again Mexico because Americans are so scared of Mexico for some reason. I mean, they mm. we have the worst sensationalist headlines here that scare people. Um, but yeah, once you go down there, you're like, oh, this is actually a huge country and extremely diverse, and there's plenty of places that are safe to visit. Yeah, we just got married in Mexico in November, and I know there was talk with some of my family that lives in the Midwest about, you know, the safety aspect of traveling down there for our wedding. And it just always surprises me because we've spent so much time down there. And if you visit, you're like, oh, okay, this is totally fine. Like, I'll be completely fine. But for people who, you know, live in, you know, more isolated parts of the country or maybe don't have a passport, have never traveled before, that can be really, you know, hard for them to understand that you can go to these countries and nothing bad will happen. You'll be completely fine. You won't get your head cut off. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's funny you say that because the same conversation happens in in our household when we talk about visiting any places, even some places in the States where there's a narrative of, oh, it's dangerous. Um, And It's weird because I I feel like people outside of the States say, I wouldn't go to the United States. It's so dangerous right now if they see what's happening in the news. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you can see that inside the U.S. as well with how the media has represented the protests. And you can very much see a distinction between, like, how CNN might report and how Fox might report, you know. And they both have a very different targeted demographic as to what narrative they want to push. So, in you know, in more of the liberal circles, you're seeing this as a progressive movement and peaceful protests and, you know, pushing for what should be change should have come a long, long time ago. Whereas in, when you look at more of the like conservative media, you're seeing this as violent protesting and you're seeing, you know, all this crazy stuff. And, you know, we were just talking about this last night, which is such, an, such a funny um, thing that's happening up in Seattle with these people that are taking this separate section and they're using guns to like sort of arm, arm this isolated area. And, uh, yeah. But mm-hmm. they're like the crazy liberals now. And it's like, well, aren't you guys on the right talking about gun control? <laughs> and so, uh-huh. You know, yeah. it's like you kind of can't win. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I completely understand. I've had friends who live in different countries and they message me and they're like, are you guys okay? Like, seems like your entire <laughs> country's burning down. I'm like, pretty much like it's a shit show over here. So I get it. But like, I mean, honestly, this is probably one of the more dangerous countries. I don't know. Mm. That sounds crazy. But like for me, when I go visit Australia, I definitely feel safer considering they have way less guns than we do over here. And just little things like um, like getting you know into a road, road rage incident with somebody on the road in Australia, I'm like, cool, that's totally fine. If it happens here, I'm like, mm, I'm going to be a little bit more cautious because who knows like if they're carrying like an AR-15 or something, who knows? Yeah. So I get why people have that perspective of the United States. Like this is a crazy country. <laughs> and a particularly yeah. crazy time. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. It's, it's fascinating because I... I almost, when you juxtapose America and Australia, you see a lot of similarities in terms of its upbringing. Um, you know, b- both of both of the countries started um, with almost like this imperialistic mindset, 
of white people moving onto the land and, and stuff like that. And so I, I find it interesting when, when Americans make the claim, you know, we were built off of systems of oppression. There's no way to fix it. But when you see Australia, it seems like the conditions are, are so much better, yet the, the roots are almost the same. Very yeah. similar, very similar histories, like in terms of timing, in terms of like British colonization to similar like narratives with genocide of indigenous populations. And but I guess like Australia built its country off the back of convicts, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, which everybody likes to remind us. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of similarities between the two cultures as well. Like pop culture transcends, you know, like Western culture is very like yeah homogenized as well but uh yeah two very different approaches when it comes to looking at you know gun control healthcare education like mm -hmm. some really key industries yeah it's such yeah very similar countries like um yeah at face value when you visit they look so similar but then in terms of yeah like social services and a lot of the values it's really different although australia is not without its flaws as well and its oppressions of indigenous people yeah, so we still have our issues as well <laughs> yeah yeah one of the troubling things that you you noted previously regarding how the news is portraying uh, at least the protests but also just in general is that we're being in my opinion and in the opinion of what's kind of central to this podcast is we're being stuck in echo chambers and we're not hearing from people anymore so i'd love if you could speak to how this immersive process of traveling, uh, one that is much more sustainable than just traveling for the point of a vacation and being in a hotel, how that can really rupture through an echo chamber. Yeah, I think traveling is probably the best thing anybody can do if they're very like stuck in their ways, especially slow, long term travel. Because the problem is a lot of people, you know, go on like a one week vacation. And I totally understand like Americans only get two weeks off a year. So yeah. I get it. You don't have a ton of time, but they go and they stay at the resort and they stay in the resort and they don't go out. And the only, you know, local person they talk to is their waiter and it's just to give their drink order. <laughs> so it's a very very like completely closed like you might as well still be in the united states you're not going to get that and cultural and everybody they interact with is you know probably from the same place and you have the same yeah. conversations with them so even when you meet people on the road you're seeing the same sort of people as well yeah exactly um so that's why i'm just so grateful that we had so much time to travel really slowly and we were basically forced just because we were very budget backpackers when we first started traveling we you know had those conversations with people on public transportation because you know when you're in crammed in a bus with somebody like basically on your lap for 30 hours you're going to start a conversation and that's when you have those really valuable interactions and discussions and that's when you're really going to learn about what a place truly is and how it's experienced by its locals and that will make all the difference so yeah, it's, it's, I, I mean, travel is the best way to get out of your bubble and also, yeah, just experience other cultures and also see how other cultures, uh, view your country and who you are, mm -hmm. uh, and just have that cross cultural exchange. Yeah. I think that's a really good one. Like that's an introspective thing that you get is when you hear people talking about your own country and what they perceive as like how you're and sort of like looking back in the mirror and, you know, sometimes you hear things and you're like, huh. Yeah, you know, like people are very critical of the US always. And I think that's like an easy fallback for a lot of people. But, you know, like Aussies, as Christine said, we're not without our faults as well. And, 
you know, you hear those things and you do get to have those conversations with people and things that you probably haven't had to think about a lot. When you meet somebody, whether they're from that country or just meet another traveler, you get into those conversations and you, you get different perspectives that broadens your mind. And yeah, it just, I guess it gives you more tolerance of difference as well. So you learn more about people and their struggles and especially in the work that we've done working in development, you definitely become a lot more like your humility and you, you get exposure to, you know, the opportunity and the privilege you've had as well. So I think that that's also like a very enriching experience as well. Totally. I think, yeah, people, it's, yeah, people when they, especially working in development and just visiting developing countries and, you know, getting out of that, you know, backpacker route, you just learn how, first of all, how privileged you are to come from where you come from. And people either, they, it kind of goes one of two ways. One, they have this facade of like, oh, these people are so impoverished, but they're still so happy and like everything's fine. Look how happy they are to have so little, which is like drives me nuts. Or they have the other side. It's like, oh, these people um, are so impoverished. Like I need to come and save them and like, Mm -hmm. you know, do two weeks of volunteering and build my shitty house (laughs) for them. And yeah, people just need to go there and try to, you know, ignore their preconceived notions and just sit down and talk to people because people in other countries, they want to share their stories and they want to share their experiences. And if you're a traveler and you're willing to listen, you'll learn so much more from that than just, you know, staying in hostels and doing the normal backpacker route. Yeah. And I think that like, not to take away from anybody's challenges, but I think like no matter where you're at in your life in the U S or in Australia, like in countries that are very, like have a lot of opportunity. If you were to go to somewhere impoverished and you if you're to interact with these communities you'll suddenly see that like a lot of your concerns and challenges are like nothing compared to those and and that's that doesn't take anything away from you know what's happening in the u.s now and and you know any kind of minority struggles or anything like that but to actually just for day-to-day struggles that might seem inconsequential you know that you think are a big thing and then you go and see what these communities these households these people these whole cities are dealing with on a day-to-day basis it does make you realize that you know, maybe you haven't got it too bad. Mm. I think the reality check is super important. Massive, yeah. Yeah, possibly more important now than ever. And in some sense, it also develops empathy, which is something that I think we're missing so much of right now, just being able to put ourselves in the shoes of other people, feel how they feel, and have those conversations. So I'm really glad to hear that you've been able to do that. It inspires me, honestly, to to want to go and do that now, (laughs) even though we're in quarantine. Um, (laughs) Yeah. To bring things a little bit full circle, on on your podcast, you talk about when shit goes wrong. So I'd love if you could share with us and our audience, you know, like the craziest moment that comes to mind or craziest story that you have, just to give them a little taste of what they could find on yours. Your Cuba story is always a good one. My Cuba story? Okay, so we were in Cuba for the second time. This was in 2015, traveling from Mexico. 16. Yeah, terrible memory. (laughs) And I started feeling really unwell on the plane ride over. And the day just got worse because immigration is a shit show in Cuba. And you just have to wait hours in line. And I was feeling like I was about to faint. And then we had to wait hours for the baggage. And so it was about midnight when we roll into Havana in our taxi. And Jules has written down the address wrong for our... uh, 
uh, Casa Particular, which is a room where you stay in with the family. He says he didn't, but somehow we did not get to the place that we booked. Throw me under the bus with this story. Okay, so (laughs) so there was a miscommunication in some way. Someone made a mistake. Someone made a mistake. I don't know who it was. Uh, (laughs) But we could not find the place that we were staying and so basically, we ran into this uh, local Cuban man who was very gracious and let us stay in his kitchen uh, for a few hours while he ran around the city trying to find a place for us to stay. And then we found out that Obama, the Obamas were in town. Wow. And that's why the entire city was completely booked out. And it the was, Rolling Stones. And the Rolling Stones oh were gosh. playing a free <laughs> oh show. <laughs> so the whole city was booked out. So I'm sitting in this random Cuban family's kitchen like one at 1 a.m. They're like, do you want some coffee? I'm feeling like I'm basically going to die. felt terrible. Um, Finally, he finds us a place to stay. And over the course of the next few days, I just started feeling worse and worse. Basically stopped eating, stopped drinking water, just slept all day. Finally, uh, the woman whose house we were staying at was like, oh, do you have red dots on your stomach? And I was like, yes, that's so weird. I do. And she's like, yeah, you have dengue fever. Like, you need to go to the hospital (laughs) immediately. So we went to the clinic. And we were like, oh, we can, you know, we'll just wait it out a little bit. Yeah, We'll see how you you feel tomorrow morning. (laughs) We were such backpackers. We were like, well, oh, it'll be fine. (laughs) So, yeah, we waited. Uh, And then, yeah, went to the clinic. And they immediately were like, you have to get to the front of the line because you look like you're going to die. Oh, my God. yeah, got had a bunch of IV hydration, and then they were like, "You need to go to the uh, tropical diseases hospital immediately and get on like full IV treatment." So I threw you in like some janky uh, ambulance. <laughs> ambulance. It's kind of like a just like a car with a little siren on the top. <laughs> it was like a cart, like a wooden cart ambulance. Uh, so then we went to the hospital. We were there for five days. Luckily, Jules was able to rent the hospital bed next to mine because apparently you can do that in other countries. And it was like the most abandoned, rickety, shady hospital with like the lights flickering. I, I don't think anybody actually goes to this hospital except for us and like one other patient. It was on the middle of a, it was like in a random area on the middle of a highway. And it was like super abandoned. Yeah. And so I was there. We were there for five days and we missed the Rolling Stones concert. Jules decided to stay with me in the hospital while that was happening, which is very sweet. And yeah. And then, yeah. And then this is a testament to how budget backpacker we were back then. Instead of taking, when I got discharged, instead of taking a taxi back to our hotel, we took the local bus that cost like oh five gosh. cents and we were just like crammed in this hot bus and I was still feeling terrible because I just got out of the hospital. But we were like, we're not going to pay $15 for a taxi. We're going to take the bus. For five cents. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that was scary, especially because like obviously no Wi-Fi or anything. So I couldn't really communicate with my family. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, you never know with things like that when you're in a foreign country and you're hospitalized, you never know, you know, how it could go. But luckily it was all fine. I recovered, but that was a pretty scary moment. Yeah. yeah. It costs about $700 for everything. Just as wow. a testament to the amazing medical services of Cuba. I mean, Cuba is known for their Cuban doctors and their medical service, but yeah. a testament to the country as well. Like the service was, you know, Nah, it was okay, okay. <laughs> but like it was very well priced. To put it that way, yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's grit. If I've if I've ever heard it, I I can't even imagine what I'd do in those circumstances. Um, but 
that I mean, it's such a great story, and I'm sure our listeners will be eager to find where they can find you, um, listen to the podcast even. So I want to give you the chance, roll the red carpet out for the two of you. Where can people find you and, and listen and read? Yeah, so if you want to check out our travel blog, it's called Don't Forget to Move, that we talk about responsible tourism, adventure travel. We have all our itineraries, our trips, our our tips, our tricks, and that's all at don'tforgettomove.com and all our socials are don't forget the number two move. So Instagram, Twitter, everything. Yep, and then the podcast is called Not So Bon Voyage and that's everywhere you can find a podcast. And the website for that is notsobonvoyage.com and all of our socials are Not So Bon Voyage. So Keeping it simple. Pretty easy. <laughs> Fantastic. Jules and Christine, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Everyone for listening, thank you so much. We will see you when we see you. Peace. Peace. Thanks, guys. guys. Of course. That was fantastic.